This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. The Lesbian Historic Motif podcast is delighted to talk to Nairi Bakalian, whose recent novel, Grey Dawn, blends both familiar and innovative tropes in sapphic historical fiction. Welcome, Nairi. Thank you. It's good to be here. So why don't you start by giving us a synopsis of Grey Dawn? It starts out as a fairly standard American Civil War gender-disguised story, but then it takes an interesting turn. So Grey Dawn is two intertwined stories. It's the story of a couple from the 19th century, and it's ultimately the story of the same couple in the 21st century. So let me actually begin this by reading the opening words of chapter two which is the perspective of of one of my characters. Call me Lee. Six years ago, my wife Chloe took an accidental shortcut from 1863 to arrive in the 21st century. But me, this is my second time around. I know, I know, same name, same hometown and all that. I mean, what are the odds? Let me guess, the the thing you're dying to know is what do you remember? I get that sometimes. What do I remember from before, or at least what did I remember back at the beginning of all this six years back? The answer is going to disappoint you, I'm afraid. I didn't remember much. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Killjoy. So the story begins in rough, I think it was 1858, and Chloe Parker Stanton, who is is the daughter of an affluent Philadelphia family, Philadelphia Quaker family, has gotten to the point with watching the late, I guess the term would be late antebellum, crisis over slave states versus free states, and people coming up from the South to hunt those running away from slavery for freedom. She's gotten to the point where she can't take it anymore, and she wants to act. And so she decides to act and to fight back against one of these posses that has come up from Virginia and nearly gets herself killed along the way, only to be saved by another woman who tells her to go home and mind her own business and do her own sort of good where she can with what she has. And that's how she meets Lee Hunter, who is involved with the Philadelphia Vigilance Committee, one of the major uh, anti-slavery committees and, and movements in the greater Philadelphia area, particularly in the, in the 1850s. So the two of them eventually become partners. And in 1862, at the beginning of, near the beginning of the Civil War, Chloe gets to the point where she really feels like she needs to go, actually go to war to strike slavery where it is and end it forever. Three days after the Battle of Gettysburg, she's thrown forward to the 21st century. And <laughs> as I say, it takes an yeah, interesting turn. Yes, yes, it's sort of. And I've been asked, I've been asked quite often, how does this happen? What does it look like? Well, that's less important. The, the what matters is that she fell through time, and that she had no control. Yeah, over it. wave your hands yes. and uh, and then it's in on. one direction. So she falls forward in time and has now lost her former world. Meanwhile, in the 21st century. 
A different woman by the same name, Lee Hunter, has always felt since childhood that there, she had to look for something in the U.S. Army. She didn't know what. Look for something, look for someone. And as with so many trans women, uh, also, you know, in the interest of pushing back against uh, gender angst and uh, thinking that, uh, you know, in a, as she puts it, a vain effort to man up, enlists in the U.S. Army and spends 17 years running away from her truth as a trans woman, but also looking in vain for whoever it is she's trying to find. So we meet her three years after she's gotten out of the Army. Uh, she's a decorated combat veteran of 17 years service. And suddenly, as an agent of this fictional Joint Temporal Integrity Commission, she crosses paths with Chloe Stanton, time-traveling cavalry soldier abolitionist of the, uh, of eight, from 1863, and she has this inescapable feeling that she's found what she was looking for. And so the story is of the, about the two of them figuring out what that is and who they are to each other. Yeah. There seems to be something of a small cottage industry in sapphic fiction set during the American Civil War. And pretty much all of them involve one character participating in combat being taken for a man. Yes. Which can blur the categorization between lesbian stories and transgender stories. I'm, I'm familiar with one series that originally started out as a gender disguised story and then as the author explored it, became a transgender story. Mm -hmm. uh, you take that theme in a new direction with the parallel modern timeline where your, your 19th century character who slips through time was, you know, is, is it wrong to say was in gender disguise for the purpose of joining the army? Is that an accurate characterization? That's, a, that's an accurate characterization, yes. And then your modern character is a trans woman. Yes. So what sort of opportunity does that create for your historic time traveler, among all the other things yeah. that she has to deal with, engaging with different understandings of gender? So this is a good question. And part of what I wanted to do with Grey Dawn on the historical side was to underline the fact that language around these identities has changed since the 1860s. And, oh, yeah. and yet at the same time, you know, there's a scene near the beginning of the story where Chloe discovers, like starts to learn modern LGBTQ uh, language. There's a scene where they're at, they're at home and Lee and Chloe and Lee's housemate and who's also her cousin, Hiromi, are all sitting having breakfast. So they're chatting about photography or something, you know, and other just mundane things. And Chloe turns and she says, so Hiromi was telling me about that flag. She pointed over her shoulder. On the wall beside the fireplace, which we used as an art nook, hung a rainbow flag beside my old army banner. Your, the term was trans, transgender, yes? And Lee is surprised because you know her cousin's been t having having this conversation with Chloe, and she had no idea that this the conversation had already happened. So that's the beginning <laughs> of Chloe learning modern terminology, and then at the end of this sort of a back spirited back and forth of what did you say? I, I, I slow down. Um, and uh, finally, Hiromi says, "Hey, whoa, whoa, slow down." She asked first. Besides, relax. It turns out she's one of ours. I glanced uh -huh. at Chloe. Is this true? Chloe turned to regard the flag, sighed, and nodded. There's a lot of history I've missed, a lot of new words that have been made, but it isn't anything that didn't exist in my time by different names. Besides, lesbian. I like it. 
It evokes the glory <laughs> of the classical age. And I think I'll remember that one. That one's mine. And <laughs> mine, I echoed, along with transgender. So part of what I was trying to do was to underline that fact that language has changed, but these identities under different names or through different lenses have always existed. Another thing I wanted to do on the, again, on the historic side, when we see Chloe learning how to be a soldier in 1862, she is taken under the wing of two people who would now we would now think of as trans men. And I wanted to specifically to include transmasculine representation on the, you know, in the 1860s chapters to underline the fact that some people assumed, you know, a male persona in order to go to war because they wanted to go to war, while other people and I'm thinking of real in terms of real historical figures. I'm thinking of Albert D.J. Cashier, assumed a new name and lived under that name for the rest of their lives, and that was more of an identity for them rather rather than an expedient. So I that's the other side of what I was doing there. Yeah, there were a lot of different motivations, and I think that's something that can get lost in you know what. I picked this up from one historian, the naming and claiming aspect of queer history. Yes. You know, yes. Where, where people want to be able to make, you know, strict one-to-one connections between modern and historic identities. But it, it was so varied and messy, as you point out. And, and I like what you have done there in that there is a tradition going back to like the, the 17th century of gender crossing. That's a nice neutral term. Gender crossing people being helped out by people who have already been through that, who will, you know, help them get access to the right clothes and show them the ropes and all that. And and that gets lost a lot, especially with um, sort of the American individualist approach to history. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's actually, I like how you put that, because when Chloe meets the first of these comrades of hers who teach her how to fly under the radar, as it were, how to how to pass as a man, you know, he pulls her aside and says, you aren't fooling anyone, your binding is slipshod and your voice is cracking. Luckily for you, I recognize one of my own. Fear not, for I shall teach you. We can save the Union and help be recognized as the man that you are. I'm not a man, I said. I'm just eager to strike a death blow to slavery, but I entrust myself to your tutelage. That's good enough for me, he said. Now then, private, <laughs> come along. Uh-huh. So yeah, in my own way, I've, I've tried to evoke some of that. One of the things that struck me, and this is not just from talking to a lot of authors of lesbian historical fiction, but from putting together a database of books in the field, is, is that there's this repeating motif that I call cross-time stories that are contrasting a historic storyline and a contemporary one in some way. So either a modern character is doing research in the past and discovering queer lives, or there are past life memories or time travel like you use. And although I've got my own theories about the function of this motif, I'm curious about what inspired you to use that motif. Some of what I think what I was trying to do there is try to explore through that motif the fact that the Civil War really this is unfinished. There are things that have been left undone. There are issues of justice and equality that have not been addressed, and there are fights that have been not seen through to the end. And so part of I think what I was trying to do there was to evoke that, that this is unfinished through this couple to have 
you know, someone actually from 1863 wind up in 2020 and not only have her own personal, you know, loose ends that she's trying to address, but also to see 2020 through her eyes and see, you know, what still needs to be done, what what struggles still need to be carried forward. It seemed like a useful framework to, to build that around. My other inspiration there, my professional background is that I, I did my PhD in Japanese history. And while my focus was on military history, my advisor was also very interested in theater history of mm. no theater form that was particularly favored by the samurai cast. And there's a no play called Izutsu, about the restless spirit of a woman who pines for her lost spouse, who was her childhood sweetheart, and they used to measure each other by the uh, against the uh, curb of a of the well cradle of the town well. At the climax of the story, she longs for him so much that she puts on his cap and his court robe, and she goes looking for him. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, what if I had the character who loved and lost was so thinking of that poem, although the highwayman, uh, come to thee by moonlight, though hell oh, should yeah. away. Um, you know, what if this person who had loved and lost was so eager to find the woman that she had loved that across lifetimes she tried to find her? Some of that inspiration as well in my use of that motif. So, so is it accurate to classify this book as a romance novel? I have complicated feelings about that, and that actually was a <laughs> that was subject of a spirited discussion with my publisher. Um, okay, so maybe we'll just leave it there because to be more specific might be a spoiler. Yes, yes, it's well. Let me let me put it this way: romance is something that in pretty much all of my fiction has a place, but I don't know if romance was the first thing in my mind as I was writing it. Uh-huh. But can, can we satisfy the readers and tell them that it does not have a tragic ending? Let me... I, in <laughs> okay, that okay, vein, we'll back it, off on that one, too. <laughs> it, it, no, 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 it's a fair, it's a fair question. But in that vein, I, I, I think it's important to note, and it's not particularly spoilery because this is a sort of a standard feature of my fiction. Given that LGBTQ people and particularly trans people have had, you know, have had the misfortune of terrible being written into terrible stories with terrible endings over and over and over and over and over. My rule of thumb in pretty much everything I write is that there's no such thing as a tragic ending. People have scars that linger with them, but the idea is that they come out of the story whole scars and all. Okay. I just, I I know that, Queer readers often, you know, they're willing to read a whole scope of types of stories, but often they want to know what they're getting into so they can be prepared. Yes. And I and this is this is one of the things that motivated me at the very beginning when I started to actually write with an eye toward publishing. Like I want to write the kind of stories that don't end with one of the people dead. You know, I, I want to write the stories that end, you know, happily or at least happily enough. So I don't think the readers will have anything to worry about. So let's talk about that a little bit, because both as you, you have an academic background in history and, and you identify as queer. And how does that affect why you write what you write? And I have another follow up question that I will repeat if we don't get to it, which is how does being a historian make writing historical fiction easier and how does it make it harder? Oh, both, both very good questions. So why do I write what I write? 
Um, well, part of it is because because it has to be done. Honestly, I remember the moment that I decided I was going to do this it was about seven years ago, and I was quite a few people my age. You know, I, I grew up on you know, in the, who were in this various parts of the sci-fi fandom. I grew up on Star Trek, and I was rewatching old Star Trek episodes and thinking. There is, n- I don't see anyone like me in these stories. And wouldn't it be awesome if there was a trans lady Starfleet captain? <laughs> what if I wrote that? I am going to write that. I'm going to write stories like that. And, so, and hence the entire field of fan fiction, of course. Exactly. So I started out in fan fiction and then I thought, well, this is cool, but I'd like to play in my own sandbox and be able to actually, you know, sell these and, you know, be able to claim them as my own rather than, you know, playing with someone else's intellectual property. So I started writing my own original content and here I am. So as a queer woman wanting to fill a lacuna and a a gap in representation was one pretty important part of why I write. Another thing is that as a historian, as one of my characters says later in the book, you know, we want to be careful about putting modern words into the mouths of historical figures. Uh-huh. But I encounter figures in my my own research, even though you know my my specialty is not queer history specifically. I encounter uh, figures all the time that make me go, "Hmm, this looks familiar." <laughs> so to write the kind of and. Pretty much everything that I've written also has a very strong historical component. So to write the kind of stories that remind people, remind readers that, okay, yes, modern terminology didn't exist in 1863 or whenever, but people like us have always been here and will always be here. Getting back to the question of how does being a historian affect writing historical fiction? (laughs) Well, something that readers of Grey Dawn will note is that Along with the, and so after the story concludes, along with the, the illustration section, because I, I illustrate my own work, is references section <laughs> and a bibliography. I, I'm feeling called out here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thought you might. Um, as a historian, I feel like something that, uh, this sort of loops back to the earlier question, but something that I, I, I'm a strong believer in is bake, what I call baking kale into the brownies. Um, I am very sorry, sorry, passionate. I, just, I, I hate kale, so that's... I, <laughs> that's fair, that's fair. But the point is, how do I, like, as a, as a historian, I'm very passionate about how do I get people to learn history? How do I get people to internalize trends and concepts and important uh, uh, names well, you know, you can do the traditional classroom approach and that works sometimes and you can write, you know, straight up history books and that works sometimes. I like to sneak it in in my fiction. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, you need to do a lot of research. And when you do a lot of research, you accrue a lengthy bibliography and some of that wound up at the back of Grey Dawn. I have a selection of my references, my broader references of I read these in order to build a better rounded out uh, world building but then i have the bibliography of works that i actually quoted in the in the book so it's easier as a historian because you know i'm i'm working from things that i know i'm working from things that i professionally study it's harder as a historian because you're sort of hyper conscious of the things that you don't know you know mm, as yeah. a specialist of, yeah as a specialist of japan 
I in the 1860s, I you know I have you know this I have some sort of overlapping awareness of I pr- prior to this project I had some overlapping awareness of some of the particularly military uh, issues and 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 knowledge uh, from that era from the U.S. But I'm not an expert. You know, I'm not a specialist in say abolitionist history or in queer history. But you know. Uh, after after a certain point, you have to you have to tell yourself, all right, well, you don't need to be an expert. You need to write a believable, well crafted story. And I, I quote uh, Charlie Parker in my uh, introduction to the uh, to the references. I say, jazz great Charlie Parker once said, "You've got to learn your instrument, then you practice, 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 and then when you finally get up there on the bandstand, forget all that and just wail." So you, after <laughs> yeah. a certain point, you have to you have to just wail. Yep. So it's harder to get to that point as a historian because I think I'm holding myself to a higher and possibly unrealistic standard. Ultimately, this is fiction. Yeah, I think yeah. that uh, for academic historians, it's really easy to get stuck in the in the orchestra mode of music where. You know, you get very, very good at playing the notes on the page exactly as they're written. But yeah, the ability to get out there and just wail, that's that's the vital step to being a good novelist. Exactly. I love that. Exactly. And uh, this is something that I think that uh, more academic historians really ought to put energy into, because one of the criticisms that I got when I defended my master's thesis was, this reads too much like a novel. <laughs> And I thought, well, is that a bad thing? Um, but I spent the next four or five years erasing the color and humanity and vitality out of my writing. And then when I had my final committee meeting before I defended my doctoral dissertation, I was told, put the color back in. Yeah. Like, but you told me to take it out. Well, especially, and I'm thinking of that transition now, now in my academic field, which was historic linguistics, uh, th- it's a different question, but that point when they turn around to you and they say, okay, you've got your PhD, now turn your thesis into a book. Yes. And, <laughs> and the market for dry, purely historical books is smaller than the market for popularized history, which needs yes. all that color. Yes. And that's exactly the the challenge I'm facing right now, turning mine into a book, because, you know, I'm not going to become a professor. And I have something of an audience on social media where I talk about history at length, particularly on Fridays. I have a thread called Friday Night History. I have this manuscript that I wrote back in 2017, or I finished back in 2017, but it can't stay the way it is if I want it to have an audience. And besides, if I made it for an academic press, only academic clients would buy it and it wouldn't really reach anyone. So it's a whole other animal learning how to write for the non-specialist public. But I think that after three years of of uh, you know, quote unquote, doing history over social media, but also now writing, you know, and publishing short fiction and now a novel. I'm hoping that I'm better positioned for it than I have been in the past to actually get it done. I wrote the first dissertation in English on my particular subject, and every time I talk about it, I get these amazed looks, like, "Wow, why didn't I know about that?" Well, because nobody studies it; it's not incentivized <laughs> in the academic world. You know, it's like all I need to do is say when they ask, "Well, what did you study?" and I tell them, "Samurai with Gatling guns," <laughs> and look at me like, 
what? <laughs> so yeah, I, I it's important to me to actually uh, get that out. But along the way, a way that I can I can get some of these things out uh, in a looser, more accessible form is by sort of working it into the fiction. And I wanted to say, sometimes the real history will come back and surprise me. And I'll tell you my favorite example of it from this project. So when yeah, roughly midway in the story, when we finally see Chloe joining the Union Army, she assumes her father's name is an alias. So Will Shaw. Mm-hmm. I was going through the roster of the real 17th Pennsylvania Cavalry <laughs> Company F. Wouldn't you believe that there was a real Corporal William Shaw? Well, it's a nice generic name. Exactly! Common, but not, uh, you know, not too common uh, to the point that it popped out at me like whoa how did i miss this um <laughs> and in, in a particularly i think uh spooky uh, coincidence that person vanishes from the roles about a month after gettysburg mm-hmm. so it was sort of one of those moments I, that i've had as a historian but also as an author of fiction where the real history will kind of tap me on the shoulder and and you know and, the real history of Ordinary people in the Civil War is is so fascinating. Um, My great-great-grandfather left extensive diaries and letters from his time in the Union Army, which I have, my mother transcribed them and edited them, and I've been gradually getting them up in annotated form on the web. And, you know, his adventures and the stories he tells and the, you know, the grueling slog and terror and... And the embedded attitudes, it's its just so fascinating. It makes the people so human in a way that history books don't. Yes, we, we forget. I think we tend to forget that in our, in our rush to mythologize, in our rush to put these figures into neat and dry boxes. We forget that they were real people just like you and me, and they were not that long ago. I mean... I knew, not from the Civil War, but I I corresponded with, uh, at that point, an elderly teacher of Japanese sword whose teacher back in the 30s had been one of the last survivors of the Japanese Civil War, which was the subject of my dissertation and happened in 1868 and used American Civil War surplus. (laughs) But it really was not that long ago. You know, the last, from what I recall, the last Union Army veteran died in 1955. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so this is recent enough that we have recordings of some of their voices. We have really good photographs, contemporary photographs, like putting the humanity back in, putting the color back in. Yeah, and not to get... Off, not to get too much off on a tangent, but one of the things in terms of historic versus modern attitudes that really struck me was my great-great-grandfather was very anti-slavery. I mean, that was the biggest thing he talked about for his motivation for being in the army. And yet, once he became an officer, he was assigned an aide who almost certainly was a black man. And not only is that fact never mentioned, but the way in which my great-great-grandfather just accepted the, you know, what was functionally a slavery-like situation with this man serving him without ever commenting on that aspect of it. And it's this fascinating 
conflict in ideals versus reality that comes out again when you see people in you know unguarded recordings of their life sorry that was just, yeah. just like this weird side tangent that uh, no no it definitely i i that makes sense i see what you mean um and i'm thinking you know, of your character you know coming up yes. through time and then being landed in the middle of 2020 racial relations and yes. I'm, I'm now curious to see how she deals with it how how it changes her understanding of the world there is she has she has an evolution of language and of perspective but i think that some of that fire some of that sense of being motivated to take direct forceful action against things that uh, that deeply offend her sense of justice and equality, I think, carry over. Uh-huh. I think, as I say at the end of the book, I, in the afterward, I am planning on a sequel. So we will see where she is and how that has progressed <laughs> roughly six years after the events of this book. Um, so that leads into my next question, which is what other fiction projects do, do you either have in process or in planning stages? So... I am currently at work on a project called Homeward Stars. It's the beginning of a, hopefully a series. It's rather than, as opposed to Grey Dawn, which kind of is growing into a series, Homeward Stars is planned as a series from the beginning. And it follows a trans woman in 2139 who is a descendant of a very long line of U.S. Army soldiers, but is lives in an era where the Earth's national militaries have all been combined into the Earth forces and all work collectively to defend Earth against extraterrestrial um, aggression. And so roughly seven years into her career into the Earth's stellar Navy, while she's assigned to a unit based out of Boston, uh, my main character, Emily, suddenly realizes that she can see the ghosts of her ancestors all the way back to the 1860s. Mm -hmm. And the things that she left undone, unresolved, after she came out and left home in order to escape an abusive um, family dynamic and transition in peace, she needs to face. And she needs to face the negative and reclaim the positive. And we just may yet see her um, live happily ever after as well. That's another project where I'm taking a lot of real history specific to American Civil War content. Her direct ancestor who began the tradition of serving in the U.S. Army was in the 20th Maine under the command of the famous Joshua Chamberlain. And more recently for her, her grandfather was the final commander of the storied fighting Irish 69th Infantry. And... um, so she's she has to face some of that uh, some of that legacy, good and bad, in order to um, in order to find her way home. Uh-huh. So, starting to wrap up now, I think it can really help to catch the interest of readers if they know what books an author has loved to read. Do you want to share any particular favorites, especially ones that might fall under the scope of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast? So. I have recently been reading, I think it's still relatively contemporary. I think it was, it's barely like four or five years old. Yeah, there we go. It's four years old. A contemporary English translation, the novella Yellow Rose by Yoshia Nobuko, 
who I reference in Grey Dawn as being one of the books that Lee, one of the authors that the lesbian authors in particular that Lee has read and has a first edition uh, copy of some of her books wrapped in cloth in her bookcase. Now, there is, I think, some debate over whether or not this can be you know, fit into the box of lesbian fiction, but rather than look for a yes or no, I think it's good to have that be the starting point of a conversation. <laughs> yeah. So Yoshia, being an author of the you know, early to mid, uh, particularly 20th century, I'm looking forward to really reading more of her work. And if I can get a hold of it in Japanese, I would love to read it in Japanese. But uh, but as far as, uh, you know, your broader audiences who are Anglophone, you know, this is available for Kindle. So Yellow Rose um, is what I'm currently reading. Right. I'm reading other material uh, recently, but less relevant to sapphic historical fiction and more legwork for my, my next project for, <laughs> you know, for Homeward Stars. Um but, um, you know, fo- folks who want to see me talk more about that can follow my Twitter. So speaking of which, if people wanted to follow you on social media, where should they look? On Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, and WordPress, I am at Riverside Wings. Okay, I will put links to that in the show notes. And thank you so much, Nairi, for talking to the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. Thank you for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon.